Good afternoon, everyone. If you have your Bibles, would you take them and turn with me to 1 Timothy chapter 4. Our text for today is 1 Timothy chapter 4, and we'll be reading just the first few verses, verses 1 through 5. And if you're there, and if you're able, would you please stand with me out of respect for the reading of God's word. So 1 Timothy chapter 4, beginning in verse number 1. Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times some will depart from the faith by, devo by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons, through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. Thus ends the reading of God's word. Would you join me in prayer? Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, I pray that you would teach us Father, that you would convict us today. Lord, I pray that your spirit would accompany your word and power. Father, we ask this in your son's name we pray. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Uh, if you were to go to my childhood home uh, when I was younger, and if you were to go to our kitchen, uh, you would notice that in both our kitchen and our dining room, uh, my mom had a theme going. Uh, she loved apples. Not green apples, but only red apples. Uh, and if you were to look around, you would find uh, we had, what was it? We probably had red apple curtains, uh, tablecloth, seat cushions, uh, knickknacks and figurines all over the place. Uh, there was paintings of apples. Uh, and right in the middle of the dining room table, uh, you would find some decorative wax apples. And they looked very realistic. And if you were to pick up one of those apples and look on the back to the section that we were hiding you would find some really small teeth marks. And I'm sure you can guess what happened. Um, I don't know if it was someone in our family. I think it was the children of a visiting family. Uh, they looked at the apple and they thought it was a real apple. Uh, the apple looked very realistic. If you were to pick up that wax apple, uh, it had the same weight as a regular apple. But if you were to bite into that apple and see what it tasted like, you would be quickly reminded, blech, this isn't the real thing. This isn't an apple. Well, in our text today, we have something very similar. It's not apples, but it's holiness. Here in this text, we have some men who have a, a decorative type of holiness. It looks holy, and it feels holy. But if you were to take a bite of this holiness and to see what it was like on the inside, you would be quickly reminded, Look, this isn't the real thing. This is an imitation holiness. We see that these false teachers in this passage, Paul is saying that the Holy Spirit has spoken of them. He has talked about their false holiness. They talk about forbidding marriage. They talk about requiring very strict dietary laws. Paul is not impressed by their rigorousness. Paul is not impressed by their figure of holiness, the Holy Spirit considers this a departure from the faith. And today as we look at this passage, I want us to think, what is a false holiness and what is a true holiness? 
What is the sort of holiness that we are called to live according to? What is the sort of holiness that we are called to forsake, to turn away from? As we look at this text today, we'll look at these two things, a false holiness and a true holiness. So first, let us look at the false holiness. Part of the reason the holiness presented by these teachers was false was the source of their teaching. Verse 1 tells us, Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times, someone will, or some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons, to the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared. Here a prophecy is given by the Holy Spirit. Whether this is a prophecy that Paul was given or whether this was a prophecy that was well known in the church, it's recorded for us here. In the previous section, we heard about a mystery of godliness. But we know that Paul also speaks in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 7, of a mystery of lawlessness that is already at work in the world. We hear of the gospel of Christ, but John tells us in 1 John 2, 18, Children, it is the last hour and as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. In the later days, in the last hour, there will be a counterfeit Christ. There will be a counterfeit godliness. The greatest enemies of the Christian faith will not be foreign religions. The greatest enemy of the Christian faith will not be ancient paganism, but as the gospel goes out, it'll be weeds that look like the wheat. It will be a form of godliness that denies the power. It will be the mystery of lawliness or lawlessness and the Antichrist. And we see that this comes from deceitful spirits, from teachings of demons. When Paul says that we wrestle not against flesh and blood, he tells us who the enemy is. There are spiritual forces of evil that the church is at war with. And we must remember this when we think about the conflict that the church has as we wrestle with the false ideologies of the world. These are not differing opinions about who Christ is. These aren't simply different religious thoughts and musings of people about who God is. But the Bible tells us that these are spiritual forces. They are evil who oppose the truth of the gospel. And their source is all that is unholy. And as Christians in the church, we do not want the holiness of the false teaching to be a part of our church. We don't want it to be a part of our lives. The result is something that looks very similar to what we're told to have, but it is not. Now, these, or this type of holiness does not only exist outside of the true church. But as I said, we too are possible, or it is possible for us to be tempted as well. It is possible for us to fall into this sort of holiness, to rest on this sort of thing. And as we look at this section about what false holiness is, we notice two things. We notice that a false holiness, it wishes both to be seen and it also wishes to conceal. 
So just quickly, as we look at the false version of holiness, we see that it wishes to be seen and also to conceal. What is it that it wants to be seen? Well, one that is false is one that wants to glorify yourself before others. It is a holiness that brings the focus upon yourself. This is the holiness of the Pharisees that Jesus was speaking of when, that we heard earlier. It's the same holiness that when Jesus says, when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. It is this sort of godliness that has no grounding. The motivation is pride. The motivation is the approval of others in the eyes of others. I say this without presuming to know every detail or every motivation or what may happen in the future, but I remember that you know, I grew up in the church. I grew up in a very conservative, um, sometimes very legalistic uh, section of Christianity. And the people that I saw around me, they seemed to be very holy, many of them. Uh, they wore the right clothes. They were for the right things. They were against the right things. Uh, they would go to all of the meetings. They would sit in the front uh, pews. They knew all of the right things to say, but they're gone now. They've departed from the faith. Something about their holiness, it didn't have any grounding. It was purely visual. I remember I went to a Bible college full of great Christians. And I remember that there were many who would read their Bibles in the public areas. They would go to, there was a fountain where everybody could see, and they would sit there and they would read their Bibles and they would spend a lot of time there praying. And now when I look at their Facebook or when I talk to them, I see that they have departed from the faith. Now, I don't know all of their motivations, what they had, but I can't help but wonder if maybe a part of that holiness was a presentation. Now, we are capable of the very same thing. We should watch ourselves to be sure that this is not the sort of holiness that we carry because it feels good to be seen by others. It feels good to have the approval of others. I mean, naturally, we don't want people to think less of us, it feels good when people think highly of us. Of course, we want people to think that we are close to the Lord, that we are holy. When we say the right things, uh, when we make a good point in small group and everybody's head nods, we like that. We like to be approved by those around us. We like to have a good reputation. But a desire for that sort of validation by others, it does not produce true holiness, if that is all it is built on. And that is what these false teachers desired. We remember in chapter 1 that Paul said that they enjoy arguing. They like to be there in the spotlight. They like to be considered teachers of the law. In chapter 6, Paul will say that they view godliness as a means of gain. Whatever it is, when people respect them or look to them, they see that as something that they can use something that they can gain from. They go above and beyond, adding restrictions to themselves to give the appearance of a life that is sold out and devoted to God. 
In verse 3, Paul says that these groups will forbid marriage, that these groups will require abstinence from certain foods, most likely certain types of meats. And it appears that they have a very rigorous devotion in their lives. But additional and unbiblical restrictions, while they may appear to be extra holy, are often signs of false teaching. The early church, as we can see, dealt with many of these things. Different groups that promoted rigorous ascetic lives, and yet they departed from the faith. We think of the reformers who saw in their own context within the church um, different teachings very similar to this. We think of the Roman churches and forced celibacy and the problems that arrive out of that. We think of the required days of fastings that burdened the people. We think of the rigorous lifestyles outside of the church that we see in Judaism or Islam or Hinduism. We think all the way down to the Mormons who disallow any form of alcohol or caffeine. Now, we may look at some of these practices and we might be tempted to respect their rigorousness, but we must remember that this is not something to be respected or admired. Jesus did not honor the passion of the Pharisees when they added the washing, of cups, the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and couches. He did not respect their added fasting. He did not look at their devotion and say that this was something to be admired. Rather, in Matthew 23, verse 4, Jesus says, They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear. They lay them on the people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. They do all their deeds to be seen by others. For they make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long. And they love the place of honor at feasts and the best seats in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces and being called rabbi by others. The same attitude is what is found in our text. Paul says in a very similar way, do not allow these teachers to continue. They lay heavy burdens on the people. They desire to be called teachers, yet they have no love for the people. Rather, they elevate themselves with baseless standards, seeing godliness as a means of gain. Now, they want themselves to be seen. That is what they want to put on display. But what is it that they try to conceal? False holiness not only wants to glorify itself, but there's also something that it wants to conceal. If we look in verse 2 of our text, it says, through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared. This can also be translated as speaking lies in hypocrisy. These two things go together, both hypocrisy and the searing of a conscience. Having their conscience seared, moving past remorse, moving past guilt, they must adopt a sort of hypocrisy. Without a right holiness, they must create a holiness as a substitute. Calvin says, as he comments on this passage, he says, this is done only by hypocrites, who in order that they may freely transgress the righteousness God's law requires, they try to hide their inward wickedness by outward observances, which like veils they cover themselves with. In other words, those who are full of dead bones, they must 
dress themselves up like whitewashed tombs. And so let us too take heed lest we fall. What is it that you conceal? What are the dead bones that are with you or that are within you? What is the outward holiness that you use to try to hide an inward holy or inward unholiness that will not last? God sees what is within. God is ready and he is willing to forgive. So do not allow your conscience to be seared. Rather pray honestly, hiding nothing. If we ever find ourselves trusting in outward displays of righteousness, let that be a sure sign that something is wrong. Let us then run to God, recognizing that we have need to go before him in confession. As God's people, we do not want a false holiness that desires to be seen and that desires to conceal our own wickedness. Rather, we want a true holiness. So then what is that true holiness? Well, we've seen the false holiness. So let us look at the true holiness. It ought to be the desire of every Christian to grow. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 14 through 16 says, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who calls you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 22 through 24 says as well, Put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life, and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self, created in the likeness of God, in the true righteousness and holiness. It should be the desire of all Christians to grow in holiness. We see that this is contrasted with the old life. If we were to look outside of the church, if we were to see how the world lives their life, if we were to look at our own sin nature and to see how we desire to live contrary to God's law, we ought to desire to forsake that. We want to repent from that. When we look at those sinful desires, we want to cast them aside. We want to embrace the life that Christ has set us free to live in. We want to live according to the gospel and according to the Spirit, a life that is in the likeness of God. It says one that is true righteousness and true holiness. Notice our text again. After describing the false holiness of those who forbid marriage and require abstinence of food, it says that God created those things to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe. And by those who know the truth. For everything created by God is good. And nothing is to be rejected. If it is received with thanksgiving. For it is made holy by the word of God. And by prayer. Notice that there is a contrast then. Between these two types of holiness. The false holiness is purely outward. This is the holiness of having long tassels on your garments. It's the Holiness of having scripture references in a box on your head. This is the holiness of having a long cross hanging from your neck when within your heart is pride and arrogance and sinfulness. It's the holiness of having 
great prayers before the church, but living lives of secret sin in your private. That is the false holiness. But notice the true holiness. It's very inward. It's thanksgiving. It's belief. It's a mind that understands the truth. Yes, true holiness will have an effect on the outward, or on the outward appearance, but it does not start there. Any sort of true holiness that is seen comes first from within because it is a holiness that is worked by the Holy Spirit. True holiness that pleases God is the outworking of what the Holy Spirit does for those who are in Christ. If a false holiness wishes for the self to be seen, then a true holiness wishes for Christ to be seen and glorified. Now, what glorifies Christ more? Fasting or forbidding marriage to the glory of yourself? Or does the receiving of, God, of God's gifts with thanks, or thankfulness in the heart to the glory of God the Father bring more glory to him? It is not refusing his good gifts to be seen that brings glory to God, but it is receiving his gifts with thankfulness that brings glory to God. It is false holiness to conceal and hide wickedness, but true holiness reveals without hypocrisy the true work that the Holy Spirit does within our hearts. And this is especially a love for Christ and a love for his people. And it is precisely a love for Christ and a love for his people that drives us to holiness. Jesus says, if you love me, keep my commandments. This is a love that the false teachers that Paul is speaking of do not have. We saw that their source of holiness is deceitful spirits. It's pride. It's a desire to be seen and a desire for controversy. But the true holiness has at its source a love for Christ. Now this begins first with prayer. We are dependent upon God for our love towards him. Which means that this is not something that we can produce ourselves, but this is something that only comes through his means of grace. So begin in prayer for a greater love towards God that will result in true holiness. In fact, this is Paul's prayer for the church as well. We see this constantly as he writes to the churches and he prays for them. If you were to look in Philippians chapter 1, verses 9 through 11, Paul prays for this church and he says, It is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruits of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Knowing that it is both love for God and for the church that is a basis for approving of what is excellent in our sanctification, Paul prays that it would increase more and more in the heart of this church. And so we pray. We pray that God would work in us greater love for him, that God would work in us greater love for the church, this is not something that comes naturally within us, meaning something that we are born with in our flesh, but this is something that is grace to us by God, to love him and to love his people in a way that is not superficial or selfish. 
We also go to his word. We hear the word of the gospel, whether through the preaching of the word or the reading of the word or the recalling to our memories what we know about the gospel. We think of our relationships and our relationships with each other. And we think about how they grow. You know, often we wonder how can we grow more and more in love with the Lord. But it's very simple. It's the same way that we grow closer to our friends and our family. It doesn't come about through mechanical steps, but it comes about by continuously spending time with one another, opening up towards the other person. We don't see progress the way that we would see a love or friendship meter increasing, but we know that over time, it organically grows. When we spend time with God, whether that's in honest prayer or whether that's meditating on his word, our love for him increases. That relationship grows stronger. Not because you're putting in the right ingredients, but because you're spending time with your heavenly father. Because you're reading and meditating on his word as he speaks to you. Because as you open up in prayer honestly towards him, going to him with all of your fears and your concerns and worries, you are speaking back to him. And you are growing with greater love towards the Lord. It's not mechanical, but it's very organic. It's very personal. That is how our Father relates to us. In this love, it increases together as a church. Paul will later say to Timothy in chapter 2, verse 22, So flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call upon the Lord with a pure heart. Run this race not alone, but with others. Christian fellowship as well is a great means of grace. As iron sharpens iron, as Paul says, or as Hebrews says, stir up one another to love and good works. If you desire greater love towards the Father, if you desire good works, a holiness that pleases him, then spend time with your brothers and sisters, opening up as we stir each other up towards love and good works. This is how God increases our sanctification. In all of this, we are desiring not to have a holiness that is described in our text, the false version, that outward self-glorifying holiness that is founded on a love for the, for the self and it tears down the church. Rather, we want an inward, God-glorifying holiness that is founded upon the love for Christ and his church. And this manifests itself in works of love. Now, as we conclude, I want us to imagine these two different types of holiness in the light of Hebrews chapter 12, verses 12 through 13. This is a very famous passage. And it says, Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees. Make straight paths for your feet, so that what is lame may not be, or may not put out of joint, but rather be healed. Strive for peace with everyone, and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. There is a sort of holiness that is necessary for salvation. It is not necessary in the sense that it earns salvation, that is only earned by Christ. 
But it is necessary in the sense that all who are justified are sanctified. All those whom God calls and forgives, he clings inwardly so that this holiness is seen. And so this holiness benefits the church. We are to strive for this holiness, recognizing that it is not done in our power, but in the power of God into his glory. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18 says, And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. We are to strive. We are to work towards this understanding. And yet at the same time, we recognize that it is God who is working both in us, whether that's to will to do this or to obey his commands. It is neither your effort, all on your own effort, but it is not the mechanical work of the Holy Spirit that leaves you completely passive, as if you are not to use the means of grace that God has given you. It is the effort of a regenerate and renewed mind and heart that is dependent on God. And this is the sort of holiness that Christians are called to live by. Be aware what sort of holiness it is that you have, what sort of holiness you are depending on, that you find comfort and assurance in. Be sure that it's not a holiness that is a crutch or a mask. Be sure that it is something that is from within, something that is based on true love for Christ and his church. Does it glorify you? Does it set you apart so that you think that you are better than others because you have it? Is it disconnected from the edification of the church? Does it only help you and not anyone else? Is your holiness one that conceals your own sinful heart, something that you can hide behind like a mask? If so, I urge you to repent of your false holiness and to seek true holiness. This is something that all of us must do as sinners. We often do reply or do rely on a false version of holiness so that people don't know what is really going on in our lives. But we must remember that this does not glorify God. It does not help us. It does not help our brother and sister. True holiness is founded upon Christ and it has a desire to see him glorified and his body built up. And so spend time with him, growing in your love for him. It is simple, but it's often neglected. Prayer, meditation on his word, Christian fellowship, remembering who you are in Christ, that his name is upon you, that you are to live a life that is identified with him. In these ways, you will grow into true holiness. And in this way, you will glorify the Holy One who has called you and made you his own. Would you join me in prayer? Dear Father, we pray for this holiness, Lord, but we don't only pray for this holiness because we are required to have it. Lord, this is something that is good for us and it's something that's good for your people. Lord, we thank you for the holiness of your Son. Lord, we know that our justification is 
completely, completely dependent on what he has done, Lord, in his righteousness. And Father, we thank you for counting us righteous as we are united to your Son. And Father, now as we live this life, we pray that by your Spirit we would grow more and more into the image of your Son. Father, that you would work in our lives, that we wouldn't become lazy. And Lord, especially that we wouldn't create a false holiness that makes us look good in front of others, but inwardly is no good to us, to you, or toward the rest of the church. Father, we pray that you would give us a greater love for you that even motivates us and shows us that this is something real and necessary that we want. Father, I pray that you would work in us, Lord, both to will and to do of your good pleasure. And Father, I pray that you would continue to use your word and to use your church to help us, Father, as we desire to grow more and more into the image of your Son. So Father, I ask all of this in your Son's name I pray. Amen.